thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we are going to address one of the hardest, perhaps the harshest, part of the book of Leviticus, which is chapter 26. Last week we spent time reflecting on God's blessings. Tonight we're going to look at the flip side, the curses. But before I go into the details of this, I think it's important for us to remember the overall context. God had instructed Abraham twice in not going down to Egypt when the situation was dire. The intent for the Lord was to bring Abraham and his descendants into the land that he had promised him. In fact, in the book of Genesis, God established two separate covenants with Abraham, not one, but two. The first one concerns Ishmael, the son he had from Hagar. And to that son, he gave a large swath of land, very big. And he promised Hagar, the angel promised Hagar, after Abraham pushed them out, then of her son will come 12 sons, mimicking Jacob, and they will rule as kings. So he gave him earthly glory. To Isaac... And, and that lineage, a smaller land was given, a much smaller land, because, because God's intent for Israel was not to be like any other kingdom. The land in ancient times is your source of economic power, land and people, but land is critical. Israel was not to be like any other kingdom dependent on human power. It was supposed to be a kingdom that depended on God's providence. Therefore, the purpose of the land was for worship. The land is tied to the Sabbath. The land was given for worship. Jacob had 12 sons from four wives. And that break into the original covenant, the prototypical covenant that God established with Adam and Eve, led to strife in his family, to jealousy, to hatred, such that 10 
sons conspired against one, willing to kill him and then ultimately sending him into exile to Egypt, where God glorifies him and raises him up to be second to none but Pharaoh, and allowing thereby Jacob to find sustenance. However, Jacob and his sons come down to Egypt and stay there during the famine, and then decides to live there. Hence, you can see the shift that happens from the spiritual order to the material order. That is a temptation that faces every single one of us. That is a temptation that the Lord himself addresses in the opening books of, the, of, of Revelation, where he speaks to the churches and admonishes them because they are consorting with the empire. That is a temptation that faces each and every one of us in very simple ways. Do not work on Sunday. Many of us can find themselves in a situation where they are required to work on Sunday and they provide excuses for themselves even though they have not taken that to the Lord and said in prayer, must I take on that job? Is that for me? Israel stayed in Egypt because it was convenient. And as a result, God went silent for 400 years until the Israelites were brought to bondage, until they lost their privileges, until they brought low, they remembered their God, and then raised a prayer to Him. That is the way God governs the world, and in particular, the church. Nothing's changed. He sent then Moses to them, who frees them from Pharaoh. And as we said in the study of the book of Exodus, by the time the plagues were done, Egypt is destroyed except the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. It looked like La Jolla. And here is Moses taking them to El Centro. La Jolla was still there. With all the economic connotation that La Jolla evokes. And he's taking them to El Centro, to the desert. And we saw the tragedy that happened in Exodus and how they responded to that. God established his covenant with them. On account of their forefathers. On account of Abraham. And up the line from Abraham to Noah. And all the way back to Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve. All the way. Therefore, family in the eyes of God matters. And it doesn't matter while we are living in this family. It matters down the ages. My friends, what you and I are doing now echoes 10,000 years from now. Because God remembers His covenant. Hence, we only see a small picture of our lives. Our life is mystery in time because we do not see 
all the parts and all the players that led us here tonight. This will only be revealed in heaven. That covenant is irrevocable. Generations down the road cannot break it. They can't say, well, that's it, we're done. Lord, I want to cancel my subscription. It doesn't work that way. It's a covenant. It's not a contract. That's why marriage is indissoluble. Indissoluble. Thank you. That. I went with the French word. Tried to say it in English. Didn't work very well. That thing. Can't break it. Right? Because God puts His divine stamp on it. We're human. We cannot break that stamp. All right. With Leviticus, he teaches the Israelites how to worship him and how to live an upright life. And the purpose of the worship is, number one, so that his stay amongst them may not go nuclear. God is absolutely holy. And sin in His presence is destroyed. Therefore, if we're a bunch of sinful people around God without any mechanism to atone for that sin, we cannot be in His presence. No man can see the face of God and live. That's why. Right? That's why. We cannot. Those, this liturgy was set to forgive the inadvertent sins, the sins that were committed without attention, without intention. The rest of it would be, there would be payment required. But nevertheless, God establishes this covenant and brings to Israel His presence so that those amongst them who truly seek Him will find Him beyond the law. The law is the framework, it's the structure to help and to train those who truly wish to seek the Lord. Because the Lord establishes the covenant, we're bound by it, He, on the other hand, is not. It is therefore important, as we said it many times, not to stick to the letter, not to see in Leviticus just the letter and the form, but to go beyond that and understand the intention. And now, in particular, when we hit this this part of of Leviticus, which is shocking, we have to understand what is beyond these words. So with that in mind, let us begin reading verses 14 from chapter 26. But if you will not hearken to me, and will not do all these commandments, all these commandments, don't Understand that as if God is going to give us a multiple choice exam. Here are all the commandments. Do you remember them all by heart? And are you mechanically living by them? That's not what he wants. Because that would be akin to a father who watches his son doing his bidding mechanically. With no loving intent. That's not what God wants. So when he says, will not do all these commandments, the intent behind it is, not just the commandments, but himself. Meaning, when you will not love me, when you will not 
be devoted to me and understand who I am when you are not in a personal relationship with me. That is what is understood from this. The framework is legal. It's a legal way of expressing these things. But the intent is this relationship that he wants with them. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances. You see that last part? Your soul abhors my ordinances. The first statements were objective. Meaning they express objectively what they're supposed to do or not do. The last one is subjective. It's their intent. If your soul abhors my ordinances. Now... In our own lives, we could couch it this way, if your soul abhors the laws of the church. If you want the church out of your bedroom, that would be the same thing. That would be the same intent. You understand? In other words, you're choosing a different way of life. You're being is not ordered to God, but to yourself. That's what is meant. So that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. Now, obviously, this does not mean break the covenant as if the covenant is annulled, but not obey, violate the covenant, not be in conformity with the covenant. I will do this to you. Key on these words. And before I start the list, the litany, I want you to key on these words because there is in this age a tendency to transform God into an innocuous, gentle Santa Claus. I am certain that oftentimes when you go to church, you will hear that God is merciful. And that God is full of compassion. And God is loving. And do we need to hear that? Absolutely we do. God is all these things and then some. His mercy is His greatest attribute. He's merciful as long as we say, I'm sorry, God will be merciful. There is never going to be a situation where if we've committed the worst possible sin you can imagine, I give you the example of Adolf Hitler himself. Had Adolf Hitler, at the moment of death, knelt down and was truly sorry for his sins. In that instant, God would have forgiven him. There is no sin beyond God's forgiveness except the sin against the Holy Spirit, which I'm not going to go into right now. But fundamentally, in practical terms, if you are sorry for your sins, truly repentant, God will forgive you. Always. Always, always, always. No matter how many times you commit the same exact sin, as long as you're sorry, and you wish you didn't commit it, and you wanted to find ways not to commit it, God will forgive you. We're on the same page. God is merciful. But it does not mean God is irresponsible or that God is not just. How would you all feel if some person who 
committed a grave sin. Pick whichever one appeals to you. Without any repentance, ends up in heaven. Unrepentant. How would you feel about that? Or what do you think of that? Not just feel. What do you think of that? Would that correspond to your idea of justice? Would that be acceptable to you? Here's Mother Teresa. Right? And let's say here's this guy who officiated over 40,000 abortions. And was never repentant. But he's right there. Enjoying heaven. What do you think of that? Do you understand? Okay. Now, here's the next mistake. The Muslims will say, doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what I do, it all ma- the only thing that matters is God. The Calvinists will say the same thing. In fact, the Calvinists will tell you that on the moment of your conception, God will stamp on your soul, heaven or hell, and that's that. Well, determinism, because we as Catholics believe in predetermination, but it doesn't mean that. Right? So that's a mistake where we put everything in God's hand and frees men of any responsibility. We cannot go that route. Most Catholics, however, go the other route. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We do. Our actions condemn us to hell. We, God has nothing to do with it. We are the ones who go to hell. My friends, there is a kernel of truth in what we're saying in that we are going to be judged for our actions. Yes. But none of us can send ourselves to hell. We do not have that power. If we did, there would be no need for personal judgment. Or the personal judgment of Jesus Christ would be completely meaningless. Since we decided we're going to hell. You understand? That is not acceptable either. God condemns us to hell just as God saves us to heaven. He rules over us. It's a true kingship, not by name. Which is, in a sense, wonderful because it gives sway to His mercy. Even if we are the worst terrible sinner, somebody in the community of saints, somebody up there who cares for us, can go to our Lord and intercede for us so that even at the moment of death, He can still come and save us, despite everything we did. You understand? It's in His hands. My friends, if you do not stand firm with this belief, you will not have the fear of God in you. God will become irrelevant because after all, you're the one who decides where you're going to go. Everything is in your hands. God has nothing to do with it. He kind of created you, pushed, pushed on the start button, and He just waits for the outcome. And He records it. That's it. Really? Listen to these words. I will do these things to you. They could have written scripture differently. The Holy Spirit could have inspired the writer to write it differently if these words were not meaningful. Do not empty scripture from its meaning. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, and fever that waste the eyes and cause life to pine away. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. 
I will set my face against you, and you shall be smitten before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not hearken to me, then I will chastise you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like brass. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me, and will not hearken to me, I will bring more plagues upon you, sevenfold as many as your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, and destroy your cattle, and make you few in number, so that you, your ways shall become desolate. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I, will, I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will smite you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the, the hand of the enemy. When I break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven and shall deliver your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And if in spite of this you will not hearken to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and chastise you myself sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing odors, and I will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city, cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest which it had not in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. And as for those of you that are left... I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you that are left shall pine away in your enemies' lands because of their, of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall pine away like them. It's tempting to take what you heard and turn it into some sort of an um, interpretative expression that sort of says, we're anthropomorphizing God, we're putting these in His words. But really, He didn't mean to do all these things problem is that you're hit with the reality of history. Open the book of Lamentation tonight. This is called the book of Lamentation of Jeremiah, which is written after the fall of Jerusalem, 587 BC, when the Babylonian army came and destroyed the city. And you will see recorded in that book these curses as they have happened. People ate their children because they were so hungry. Their dead children Read the War of the Jews written by Josephus, who was a Jew himself and who was present 
when in 70 AD the forces of Titus came down on Jerusalem and when the, finally they broke the siege and entered the city, Titus himself said that he never intended to bring such destruction on the city, but it was the work of their God. And when the Roman soldiers entered the city, this is, this is written by a Jewish eyewitness. When they entered the city, noble women came out to give them the cooked meat of their children that they were eating. In fact, in fact, some theologians or exegetes would tell you that these curses must have been written post-exile because they were so precise. They must have been written after the Babylonian exile by a scholar who was trying to make sense out of it. This is part of the historical critical method. I don't subscribe to that. Now let's go through these curses and try to understand the point that God is making. There are five major themes here. First, these curses are reminiscent of Pharaoh's hardening of heart and God's escalating plagues culminating with the death of the firstborn. In Egypt, God had a series of plagues applied to Pharaoh. And these plagues, we notice from plague 1 through 6 that Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's how scripture puts it. But 7, 8, and 9... 1 through 7, but 8, 9, and 10, the language shifts, and God hardened his heart. As the refusal to repent continues before the signs that God has produced, the plagues escalate all the way to the death of the children. Notice how it comes back to the family. Hmm? So, likewise, God structured those curses in a very similar way. They are by phases, and we're going to go through them. And between every phase, there is time given for people to repent. Yeah? In fact, in her apparition in Fatima, Our Lady says nothing different. Right? Same, same message is given in Fatima. If you do not repent, then God will punish the world with another war. Second, it's proto-apocalyptic in that it prefigures the book of Revelation, which expounds the same theme in liturgical context. By which I mean that God is showing us with His blessings and with His curses the practical means that He will use to govern our lives. Our biggest fight is to understand that everything comes from the hand of the Lord and to trust in Him and to truly believe that our lives are structured to give Him the greater glory. We want our lives to be structured to give us the greater comfort. The book of Revelation isn't primarily about the end of the world. It is primarily about how God governs the world throughout the ages and how He makes He removes obstacles for the evangelization of the world by the church. The curses are an act of decreation. Because as the curses progress, you see humanity trending towards bestiality, which is the opposite of the act of creation. All the things that God created, all the order that He put into in, in the initial chapters of the book of Genesis, from the order of nature all the way up, 
to man being the pinnacle of creation and everything ordered to serve him are being taken away. The land is destroyed. The wild beasts were supposed to fear man because Adam named all the beasts. And in, in, uh, with Noah, God told them that I will put the fear of you in the wild beasts. The, the fear is taken away. So it's a deconstruction where finally man as such behaves like worse than an animal by eating his own children. Obviously, these are an echo of the first curse against Adam and Eve that led to the exile. So this is in direct continuation of what God told Adam and Eve from the very beginning. In the case of Adam and Eve, it was only him and her. It was the family. But unfortunately, sin propagated and escalated, and we get into something like this as a result of it. However, the last point is critical. God does not relent. God does not give up. God does not give up on you. You may give up on Him, but even if you do, He does not give up on you. There is no spot for you to escape from Him. God is relentless. Are you familiar with the expression of the hound of heaven? Yeah, that's what we mean by that. He pursues you relentlessly and He will never relent. Meaning that you either are going to receive His blessings or you're going to receive His curses, one way or the other. But you're always under His rule in relation with Him, no matter what you do. There isn't a thing that you do, a thought that you have, an intention in your heart that escapes Him, escapes His attention, and He responds to that. So therefore, we all have two choices. We can live our lives back to back with Jesus. I'm looking this way. Jesus is looking that way, so to speak. Or actually, Jesus is looking at my back. Be more appropriate. Pretending that He's not there. And yet, living under His rule. Or, we can live our lives face to face with God. And that means that He is your most important, most cherished person in your life, bar none. So these curses or execration, as we call them, are composed on an escalating scale with admonition heaped upon admonition. And obviously they're done for, a, for the purpose of bringing us back. By the way, fathers, I want to speak to the fathers here. Take a cue from that. You're not called to be friends with your kids. That's not what your role is. Your role as a father is to reflect the love of God the Father in your family so that your children may come to know Him. That's your primary role. Your role as a father is to die on the cross like Christ for your family. That's what you're called to do. But you're also called to exercise tough love. You're also called to exercise tough love. We live in a world where our girls are tempted every day to dress in ways which are not modest. 
because the pressure put on them by other girls is very significant because there are mirrors everywhere, because there are magazines everywhere, because there's the internet which says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the famest or fairest or faintest? I don't know. Something like that. Right? And you as a man, you as a man, do not put the burden on your wives to deal with dress code. That's a disservice you're doing to your wives. The dress code is your business. Your business. And it's a tough fight. Girls are relentless. They keep on pushing. They always will push the boundary. And oftentimes they do it innocently and they don't know. They don't understand modesty the way guys do. Because they're not affected by it the way guys are. Your job is to till and to guard and to show tough love. So, I gave you as a reference the book of Lamentation. I'll give you another one to show you how these curses were remembered by the prophets and referred back to. In fact, the Lord himself refers to them obliquely but very powerfully. You heard that word desolate. The land would be desolate, right? Jesus Christ, at the end of his... um, at the end of the woes that he pronounced, the curses that he pronounced against the Pharisees, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you brood of vipers. He's calling them children of Satan. Hmm? At the end of that, he says, Behold, your house is left empty and. Yeah. That's the echo back to this. Hmm? Yeah. Amos 4, 6, 11. Here's the prophet Amos, writing much later. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread. Cleanness of teeth means there's nothing to eat. Your teeth are clean because you're eating nothing. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. And I also withheld the rain from you when they were not three months when, when there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain upon one city and send no rain on another, upon another city. One field would be rained upon and the field on which it did not rain withered. So you know this business of the weather going wacko? Well, there's nothing new. Okay? So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water and were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I smart you with blight and mildew. I laid waste your gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you and when, as when, God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a, as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation, where after every series of um, punishments, St. John repeats, and yet they hardened their hearts and cursed heaven. Which also reminds us that suffering alone, suffering apart from grace does nothing. Because it can harden your heart. 
Okay. Now let's look at the first wave, verse 15 through 17. Four things. Sudden terror, consumption and fever. That is physical health. Sow your seed in vain. Enemy shall eat it. That's your economy. It's not producing. Smitten before your enemies. That's war. You shall flee when none pursues you. That's mental health. So your physical health is, it, it is, uh, is um, affected. Your mental health is affected. The economy is affected. And there is also war. But notice, everything else is standing. The economic structures are still standing. Nothing's been destroyed. So that's the first wave. And obviously, this happens over time. This is not a day deal. This takes time to run its course. But that's the first wave. Everything's still standing. But things are out of whack. You understand? What is God's, what is God expecting? What is the answer that God is expecting? Two things. Number one, for them to connect the dots. Because when God does all these things, He doesn't send a messenger out of them. Right? That says, okay, we're starting now. Here come the curses. And when these things are hit, He doesn't send another messenger saying, here you go, check. And then He doesn't send a third messenger going around for a poll. Okay, are you repenting yet? 60% of Americans have repented, but 40% have not. Doesn't do any of that. Why? Why is it God doesn't do those things? Why? Okay, we have a free will. True. Yes? Okay, very good. So there are a couple of answers here. Number one, free will. Number two, he sent prophets. So he didn't go completely silent. And the prophets came in waves. The first wave came to say, repent or else. Yeah? Mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel, who decided to go worship on Mount Gerizim. Not in Jerusalem. The first waves of prophets came and said, repent or else. The second wave of prophets came and said, get ready. It's coming. And the third wave came to remind the Israelites that God is bountiful in mercy and He has not abandoned them. There will be a return. Right? What about our case? He sent them prophets. How come He's not sending us prophets? What does it mean that we say we have, we have the church? Let's be very specific. What in the church is telling us what we need to do? The magisterium and what? What, particular, what is being produced? The documents, the catechism. Yeah? The catechism is out there. And then the encyclicals. Yeah? The encyclicals. Are we listening? Are we listening? So number one, you have to connect the dots. Christ Himself told them, you know when such a thing happened that summer is coming or winter is coming, I'm paraphrasing here, right? Yeah, how come you cannot read the signs of the times? Right? What, so there's an expectation that you are pondering the signs of times. You are meditating on what is going on in the light of Scripture, a light of the teachings of the church and in the presence of the Holy Spirit for your own personal lives, as well as for all the events that are affecting the world. I mean, one has to be blind, utterly blind, deaf and dumb, not to see in 
a warning. Yeah? You really have to be not paying any attention to think it's, well, God has nothing to do with it. Right? God is up there in Alaska somewhere where Santa Claus is, and he's completely disconnected from this, and those events have nothing to do with God. You understand? Now, who is he expecting to repent? Who should repent? Catholics. Catholics. The house of God. These are the ones who hold the key. Not the world out there. Catholics are supposed to repent. So, let me show you how hard it is. And why the book of Daniel is so significant for us. Let's say you are a Catholic from Iraq. After what happened and the fall of Saddam Hussein, the Catholics of Iraq had suffered tremendously. And they were forced into exile. How many of them are taking these events and asking God to understand? Why? How many of them are reflecting on the sins committed by their fathers and taking responsibility for what had happened? In light of what I'm reading to you. All of us want to be a victim. None of us is responsible for anything. Read the book of Daniel. He's a Jew. He's been sent to exile. He's living under the Babylonians who are not treating them very nicely. In fact, they tried to cook him into the oven. What is Daniel saying? Lord, how could you treat them this way? We are your favorite people. We are the chosen one. These people are savages. Yeah, maybe we're bad. Maybe we did terrible things, but they're worse than us. Why are you doing this to us? We don't deserve this. Did he say any of this? No. He knelt down and asked for forgiveness for his sins and the sins of his people, though he is blameless. Take a cue from the Blessed Virgin Mary. Here is the purest of all creation. And yet, when she gave birth to the Lord, she was deemed unclean according to the law. As we read in Leviticus. Did she take the high grounds? I am the mother of God. I am perfectly clean. I don't need to do any of that stuff. No. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah. That's the reverent attitude before the Lord. Trying to understand in His light, not ours. That's the warning. That's when it comes. 15 to 17. Okay. Now, the second wave. 19 through 20. Break your, the proud of your power. What is the proud of their power? The land. The land is supplying. The land is giving them what they need. The land is also their power. Therefore, they're proud of what the land is doing. Now, if you've met anybody from Lebanon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is nobody, and I think I can say it with complete certainty, being a Lebanese myself, that there is nobody who is more proud from where he's coming from as the Lebanese are. Bar none. Not the Irish. Not the Polish. Nobody. Nobody. What is God to do with that kind of attitude? Here in the United States, we're not proud of the land per se. What are we proud of? The technology, our economy. 
right? Money, watch the stores that we open, right? The best in the whole world, the number one this, the best pizza in the whole world, and it's just a little shack up in Escondido, right? We have no problem claiming to be number one of anything. That's the proud. That's the pride that we have into, right? God knows that. He says, I would break this. Now ask yourself this question. Is that a curse or a blessing? See, it's not obvious, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not obvious. See, but then you understand his pedagogy. He's not trying to break the curse of the land just because he is vengeful. He just wants to tell us, I'm going to show you. He wants to bring us back. If they had listened after the first warning, he would have repented. How do we know that? Poster child number one. Right? Nineveh. Nineveh. Right? These guys, now these guys, the Ninevites and the kingdom, they had, they knew how to apply terrorism at a large scale. Those guys, when they conquered, they forced the population living there to intermingle with other populations, to break any kind of connection of nationality. They meant business when it came to terror. And yet, Jonah is sent over there to tell them 40 days, and yet Nineveh shall be destroyed. The king hears him once, once, and says, whoa, okay, we've sinned. He sits in ashes. Orders everybody to sit in ashes, including all the animals. What does God do? There you go. There you go. See what I'm saying? He relents. But here, there's obduracy. There's hardness of heart. They don't repent. So the second wave hits. The land will not yield its increase. Strength is spent in vain. That's the anti-Eden imagery. The imagery from Eden is broken. In Eden, everything was perfectly ordered to satisfy the desire of Adam and Eve. They could eat from any of the fruits except for one tree. But the fruits, the trees would yield their fruits without them making any effort. Things were structured to serve man because man was serving God. Here, breakdown occurs. I will make your heavens like iron. That means no rain will fall. Your strength shall be spent in vain. This time, no one benefits from the land. In the prior step, at least somebody was benefiting from the land. The land was still yielding its increase. Their enemies were benefiting. But this time, the land itself shuts off. You see this progressive degradation. But still, they could turn around. And it would be restored. So then we go to the third wave. And this time, plagues, more plagues upon you, sevenfold as many as your sins. Sevenfold as many as your sins. Right? That means um, the, those plagues will be persistent, will be very, very severe. I will let loose the wild beasts among you. And... In fact, what's really interesting is that the Hebrew word used here, the form of that word, which is rare in biblical Hebrew, conveys the sense of driving the beast through the land. Not just letting them loose randomly. He's bringing them, driving them to the land. 
which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in numbers. Now notice, we're moving closer to the core. It's no longer the land that is being here. It's not the economic system. It's the family. Robbing ones from children, meaning his name is cut off. There's no continuation of dynasty. This is the 10th plague of Egypt, right? And you will be few in number, so that you, your ways shall become desolate. Deserted roads are often depicted as a feature of wars and invasion in biblical literature. So, for instance, in Lamentation 1.4, Zion's roads are in mourning. Similar themes occur in Isaiah 33, verse 8. Ezekiel 30.34, and Psalms 107.38. And then the fourth wave, verse 23 through 26. And here we'll see war and pestilence and famine. Most of these, by the way, are summarized in the book of Revelation as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right? War, pestilence, death, Famine, earthquakes, and, and death and famine, and then earthquakes, right? Those are the ways by which God usually punished the world. Then, here in verse 25, I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. So now, it isn't just interior destruction, it's exterior. Right? That's the structure by which God will work through all of that. I will send pestilence among you. When I break your staff of bread, which means that um, the support of bread, that is, you're not going to have enough wheat to make bread. By the way, this is the origin of the aphorism, bread is the staff of life. comes from that uh, background. So now you have obviously war coming in, famine inside. And shall deliver your bread again by weight, meaning they have to ration, and you will not eat enough. Right? That's what that means. And then, finally, the fifth and last wave, where there is such a degradation, the famine is so severe that children are dying, and they're forced to eat their children. My friends, God is very, very serious when it comes to our holiness. Very serious. The stakes are very high. And he means business because, you know what? We should be content to suffer any pain here than suffer the pain of hell. Because nothing compares to the pain of hell. Nothing. In fact, in many of the books written by the saints about purgatory, they'll tell you that the lightest suffering in purgatory is greater than the greatest suffering on earth. And the reason isn't because God in purgatory is trying to be really mean. I don't think so. It's simply due to the, to the state in which we're going to be in purgatory. I'm going to put it to you this way. Um, say somebody breaks his arm. Now that's painful, right? Everybody would agree it's painful. Okay? Compare that to somebody who um, has his teeth plucked, but all the nerves are still there. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? So, when the nerves are raw, pain shoots up. 
right? Well, in a sense, when your soul is deprived of the body, as in 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 in, um, in, uh, in purgatory, because you don't have your body when you're in purgatory, you're in hypersensitive mode. You feel it directly. There is no buffer anymore. God wants us in heaven. Let's put that back into context. God is merciful. God is good. In fact, if He weren't, why did He establish the sacrament of confession? You understand, if He had only six sacraments and He left out confession, would be in big trouble. In fact, we need all seven of them. But without confession, we'd be in big trouble. But imagine that. No matter how big your sins are, no matter what terrible thing you've done, you can walk into the church, it's free. You kneel before a priest. You state your sins. No question asked. No, how could you have done such a thing? No argument. And you hear these words, their sins are gone. I mean, if that's not mercy, what is? Well, what if you don't want that? What if you decide you're a good guy? You don't need to go to confession. You're living your life. You're having a lot of fun. You're living in a state of mortal sin. What has God to do with you? I'll give you two options. Option number one, He'll let you go. He'll give you more of what you have. Money, power, fame, girls, you name it, you got it. Guys, whatever. You got it. You're good looking, she's good looking, he's good looking. Your life is smooth as a pebble. Everything you want. You're living in a state of sin. Where do you think you're going? And the more you continue to live in the state of sin, what happens to the degree of your punishment in hell? It increases. Option number two, God sends cancer your way. You're in the hospital. You're bald now because of chemo. The friends you thought you had are no longer around you. And this old grandma of yours you never visited is there by your side and she's saying her rosary. Which is a mercy and which is a curse? You understand? Hmm. So all of these things, God sent their ways in waves, giving them ample opportunities to come back to Him. And He only, remember, He will only use this if they what? Break the covenant and spurn Him. Not, and that's key, not break the covenant unwittingly, Break the covenant inadvertently. Not break it once and saying, whoops, what did I do? Not that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who doesn't care. Who's the Lord? I just do whatever I want. You understand? Even these people he will go after. His love endures forever. So even those curses are a sign of His love, of His care, of the seriousness with which He takes the covenant. He doesn't let go of us. And so after this last wave, in which you see cannibalism, destruction of sanctuaries, no burial of the dead, destruction of cities, the land is devastated, exile into the nations, faintness of heart, perishing among the nations, 
those left will pine away in enemy's land. And we see that, for instance, in the book of Tobit. They're living in exile in Babylon, Tobit and Tobias' son. And he had gone. Tobit is a, is a good man, so God took care of him in that case. He's protected, but still, he sits down to, to have his meal. And he tells his son, my son, go and find one of our own people who's poor and bring him here to have a meal with us. And his son comes back and tells him, my father, there is a man, one of ours, who lay, who lay in the city. He's dead. He's been strangled. So he gets up from his meal and he goes and brings this man and lays him in his room so he can bury him the following day observing the law even though he's in exile. And his neighbors laugh at him. And he said he was punished before for doing this and he's doing it again. No, no. He, he was punished by the local authorities. They were not, yes, they were not supposed to touch the dead body of these people. But then notice what the Lord says after all of this. Yeah, a couple, one more note I, want, I would like to make to you, which is very important, is this. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. Because effectively, remember, in the covenant, he told them, every seventh year the land shall lay fallow. You shall not plant it. And they did not do that. They didn't do that. So they knew that for 409 years or so, right, they were supposed to let the land lay, and they never did it. So effectively, that translated into 70 years of exile for all the Sabbath that they had not observed. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying because he knows 70 years have come and gone, and they're still in exile. And he's praying to understand why are they still in exile. The time of exile has come and gone, and that's when Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, sent to him in response to his prayer to explain to him what is going to happen. And he tells him, Daniel, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. What do you want first? The good news is that a Savior will come who will save your people. The bad news, your people's heart is still very hard. So it's going to take another 500 years of exile before you see the Savior come. And actually, if you do the calculation pretty much from the time of Daniel all the way to the time of Jesus Christ, it lines up. That's why it is stated in the Gospels that Jesus came in the fullness of time. And that meant that He came to fulfill that which was prescribed in what we're reading right now. In the fullness of time, He came. So, for instance, the essence have had those calculations done and they were expecting a Messiah. They knew something was supposed to happen right around that time because of the prophecy in the book of Daniel and the way it lined up. So, anyways, the land, the land is tied to the sanctuary, you understand? So when they defied the land, it's as if they defied the sanctuary. And this is why it had to lay fallow. It had to be purified from what they have done. And then the Lord says this, verse 42. Then, after all of this, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be left by them, and enjoy its Sabbaths, when it, when it lie desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurred my ordinances, and the soul aboard my statutes. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly, and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. That's the covenant. But I will be for their sake, 
by I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought forth from out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God will always keep a remnant. Always keep a remnant. Because of the covenant. Hence no matter what the church will never go away. The church will not be destroyed. The church is in direct continuation of that covenant. And I told you that story about some guy coming to a cardinal in Rome and telling him that Napoleon is coming into Italy and is intent in destroying the church. And the cardinal re replied somewhat dejectedly, well, it's impossible. We tried and we failed. And that's the truth. I mean, you, you know today how many issues we have with the church. Right? But God will always keep covenant because he's the one who carries the covenant forward. It is his covenant, not ours. While his son died for it. It's not just a question of work. He signed it by his blood. So, at the end of the book of Leviticus, therefore, what we see end to end is that God establishes a way for him to be with his people. He establishes the covenant. He condescends to come and be with them, to give them his graces, to offer them his protection and his guidance, and to prepare them for the coming of his son. In return, he expects them to abide by his laws and grow in his love. And if they don't, if they spurn his covenant, if they mock him, then the curses are triggered and their purposes are medicinal. Their purposes is to remind them of God and bring them back to him. But if they persist in, these, in, in that attitude, then destruction will follow. That is, my friend, the whole dynamics that you see here in the scriptures. This is what happens today in our lives, on a personal level, in our families. In our families. You understand, we're not supposed to have teenagers who are pregnant. That's not God's will. That's not what He wants for us. We're not supposed to have rebellious children who curse you and yell at you and argue with you and do not... We're not supposed to have those things. The family is supposed to be like Nazareth. It's supposed to be a place of grace. It's supposed to be a place of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But how can that happen? Why well, we just read it today. You enter into a covenant with the Lord. You obey the covenant. You trust Him. You don't limit the number of kids based on the land. Economy. You trust in Him. You believe Him. You go to Him in prayer. It's not a question of number. It's not a two or a ten. It's a question of asking Him, is this the right time? Should we have another one? Is that what you will for us? That's living the covenant. And when we do those things, despite our failings, and despite our sins, and despite our weaknesses, God blesses us. And make our families a place of blessings for others. And through these blessings we affect Society. That's the evangelization of the third millennium. It's not about going and evangelizing Africa. Eventually they're going to come and evangelize us. That's how it's going to be. But it's about your family, where you live, and your relationship with God. That's what it is all about. It starts in Leviticus. It carries forth all the way through. I mean, it doesn't start, until it goes back to Eden, actually. It carries all the way through to Revelation. So let us pray that all of us reflect 
on God's will for us. Let us pray that we would all go in prayer to meditate upon His will for us. Ask Him what He wishes for us to do and follow His will so that we may live in His blessings. Amen. Let us stand, say a word of prayer, and we'll take some questions. Yes. That's a very good question. If God is so relentless and He gives us so many opportunities to repent, why is it that some don't? And why is it that some do? Is it just the devil or the pleasures of life? Well, first of all, this is a mystery. We call it the mystery of iniquity. Meaning, we don't fully understand why someone would turn away from the ultimate good. So at the very foundational level, it is something that is still hidden from us. We don't understand why Satan rebelled in the first place. We don't understand why Adam rebelled. Right? However, on the, pra- on, the more pra- on the practical side, there are three things that, we, that are the, m- sources, the primary sources of our downfall. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? So therefore, if let's say someone... Um, has committed a sin or is fallen into habitual sin, right? Um, that person must w- wish to take steps to move away from these sources, right? Sometimes these people cannot. So you hope that there is a community around them who's praying for them here and in heaven, right? And in other words, there must be a channel of grace through which they are going to receive what they need to be saved. Sometimes we don't see that, but it is an absolute dogma of our faith that God died for all, even though it used the word many, but in that sense many really meant all. And God gives all sufficient graces to be saved. No one No one is created to be condemned to hell. Therefore, God gives all sufficient graces to be saved. One more thing. Sometimes we tend... Remember, judgment is not ours. We tend to desire to judge one way or the other. But judgment is not ours. The church doesn't canonize anyone to hell. There's a good reason for that. The church's ministry is that of mercy. Judgment is reserved to God. So we cannot say such and such a person is in hell. can never say that because that is left only to the Lord. And neither should we be very quick of canonizing somebody into heaven when they die. You should pray that they're in purgatory because they're going to need your prayers. And more often than not what happens, oh they're in a better place and then we forgot to pray for them. When they may be in desperate need of our prayers. But back to your question. All these put together tell us, number one, we should never lose hope. Number two, if we know such a person, we are that factor of grace in their life. And our prayers may be the way that they are going to come back. Right? And that's very important, and we should always stick to that hope. And um, number three, we should acknowledge, despite all of this, that the, the mystery of iniquity is beyond our understanding. It isn't something we're going to fully comprehend. Because, as Scripture says, only the Holy Spirit can um, 
really truly understand the human heart. Right? Have I answered your question? Is there another a question behind the question? No? Okay. Yes. Very good. So how do we uh, understand the events of our lives, whether we think of them as good or bad, in light of God, and how do we make use of them? To that end, St. Augustine gave us a rule that still stands today. It has four parts. Part number one, you pray. So something happens in your life, you don't understand. Remember, you're confirmed. Yes? What is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Actually, a couple. Or seven, but wisdom, knowledge, understanding. That's a gift. Okay, well, you call on it. You go into prayer and you say, I do not understand. But you, Lord, in confirming me, you gave me that gift to understand. So please enlighten me. Open my heart. Make me understand. In that process, there may be certain things that you need to let go of. And so, before you get to understand what you are after, there may be some intermediate steps you need to go through to purify your intent. Yes? So you pray for that purpose. Remember, God, God never puts a desire in your heart that He doesn't intend to satisfy. Ever. God is not cruel. He doesn't play games with us. Yeah? So if you have a desire for something in your heart, and it's abiding, and it's a good one, it's a good desire, God places it in your heart for a reason. He intends to satisfy it in His time. Pray. That's number one. Number two, you seek counsel. You seek counsel from people who would be considered experts in that particular field. Uh, and one example that my wife gave me was about a man who was a broker on the market. And before he made an investment decision, he'd lock himself up in a closet and he would not come out until God told him which way to go. Even if it meant locking himself there for three days. And he was successful in his investments. Well, okay. Prayer. You seek people who understand your field, the field of concern. And you seek counsel from them. That's two. Three, after having prayed, after having thought counsel, three, you make a decision. And four, you stick to it. You stick to it. Those are the four steps you go through when you're trying to decide what you're going to do. Right? And, oh, by the way, when you stick to it, it doesn't mean you're going to be in peace. No, not necessarily. You may only get to that later when you turn around and you say, wow. That's what happened throughout all these years. Okay? So, when an adversity hits, if it's an adversity, if something is really hard, you lost someone, you lost your house, you were forced into exile, your surest guide is to think about Job. His line has been, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a hard line to say. That's not an easy line to say. But that is faith. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And therefore, in adversity, in adversity, what you must train your soul to do is give praise to God. You must praise the Lord. 
even if you don't feel like it. Even if you are dragging your feet. Praise Him. And start small. Don't force yourself into, oh, I'm going to sit here and praise the Lord for the next three hours. I assure you, if you were to try to do that from the beginning, you might end up cursing Him at the end. Because it's too much. But if you at least have that orientation to say, okay, I don't understand why this happened to me. I don't understand why I'm suffering this way. But I wish I could praise the Lord for it. Just wishing for it is a good start. It's an honest start. You're saying to God, okay, I can't do it, but I wish I could. The Lord loves honesty. Absolutely He knows, but He realizes that you are now understanding that He loves you just the way you are, the way you are dealing with the situation, though it may be imperfect. And the fact you're coming to Him in all honesty is a great sign of love. And He will respond in time. What was hard in the beginning becomes easier. And He moves you through the Holy Spirit to where He needs you to go. The the thing you don't want to do is sit. Like the guy who received the talent and buried it. That's, That's the thing you don't want to do. Just saying, I wish I could praise you, but I can't. Start right there. And let him do, do the rest. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Oh, of course. Very good question. Is it ever happens that in a time of adversity you're praising the Lord and then it gets worse? Okay. How many of you have gone on retreats? Okay. How many of you, when you decided to go on your first retreat, do you remember what happened before? Was it good? Right? You're going on a retreat. Guess what? It gets worse. You get slammed. Yeah, sometimes the Lord will pile it up. Four or five things in a row. One after the other. Why? Well, it's not that He's testing you only. He is. But it's for your own good. He says, you can take it. I'm giving you more occasions to glorify me. Therefore, your accidental glory in heaven is going up. Not a bad deal. So that's why, yes, you continue praising Him. And it's a rational act. It's the act of the will. Your emotions are all over the place. Don't mind them. They're like a cloud. They'll come and they'll go. But it's your will and your reason that says, I wish to praise you. Even right now, I'm just boiling over. I'm about to say something I don't want to say. Even if you reach that point, you praise Him because you know it's the right thing to do. Yeah? Yes. Oh, you don't see that kind of stuff happening here. Exactly. Because God, when He created the Middle Easterns, He knew it was a mistake. (laughs) Just kidding. I can make that joke. I'm from there. So, no. You see, again, we have to be um, cautious here because, true, in the Middle East we have all these wars. You're with me, right? There's all this upheaval going on. Let's see, what do we have here? We have kids going to school and shooting other kids. We have, since 1950-something, I don't remember exactly the exact statistics, 40 million abortion. 60 million babies were killed in their mother's womb. Now, let me ask, 24% are Catholic. Let me ask this question. What would you prefer, war or babies killed in their mother's womb? You have kids shooting other kids in school. 
you have pornography eating away at this country like there is no tomorrow. So, yes, war is over there. But here, it's pestilence. Pestilence isn't just physical, as in uh, a microbe. It's also spiritual. Meaning when it infects the mind and eat away at morality. That's also pestilence. So when we say we are in darkness, it doesn't necessarily mean physical darkness. It means spiritual darkness. Jesus told his, his contemporaries, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you, do, you cannot hear. That's what he was talking about. We're living here in a society where in our place of work, we cannot say a prayer. Or we cannot mention the name of, of the Lord. Where Christmas is now a battlefield. You understand? It's a different. But I think it is absolutely true that throughout the history of the church, we've never seen this before, that these situations have attained truly a worldwide level. There isn't a country in the world that is not affected. There's none. Right? It's across the globe. You don't find a place where people are at peace. So, yeah, no. I think this time around we're all in it because across the board, Catholics have decided that uh, they want to take things into their own hands. Thank you very much, Lord, but we know better than you how big our family should be and how many kids we're going to have, and we don't really need you. So God says, okay, I'm going to send you kids who are rebellious to you just as you are rebellious to me, just to show you. Yeah. So no, we have upheaval over there of a certain kind. They have uphe- we have upheaval over here of a different kind. I'm not certain one isn't necessarily the better. Yeah? You got a question? Purgatory, you will get out. Correct. Hell and heaven are both done deals. Yeah. When you go to heaven, you cannot sin anymore. Right? And the reason why, it doesn't mean you lose your free will. You don't lose your free will. But because you see the truth, right? you have no ability to sin anymore. It would be like something like this. Suppose that we're sitting around here right now and we cannot see this table. But we see, let's say, this book's hovering in the air and we argue over the fact that it's hovering in the air, therefore there's a table. So we can doubt the existence of the table this way. But suddenly the table is made known to us. Here it is. Doubt goes away. We have to deal with the fact that the table exists. While you're in heaven, you see the face of the Holy Trinity. As it is, therefore, truth is before you. Hence, any propensity to break away from it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And hell, obviously, is a final, terminal, and eternal destination. There is no break away from hell once somebody's there. No, I mean, it, some people would even suggest that God will put an end to hell after a certain time, that he will free people from hell or make it disappear. None of that. It's there, it's forever. That's a dogma. Yes. No, very good question. When we say earthquakes, do we only mean earthquakes? No. It was adapted to the region at a time where obviously they were living on land. So rain, lack of rain, you heard me earlier, right? Make your, your, uh, your, uh, the skies like iron or brass, meaning I'm cutting away rain. That's another way he punishes them. Earthquakes breaks the land. Obviously, it's a big deal. But no, through the heading of earthquakes, all natural disasters are 
implied. Everything. 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 Yes. Yes. So let's. The reason why you're in purgatory, first of all, let's understand this. Only, only, only. Um, here's how I'll say it. Only people who die with the with who are in a state of grace and who are reconciled with the church make it to purgatory. So only folks who either have still venial sins on their souls or have temporal punishments due to sin. So you know when you go to confession, you're forgiven. Yes? But there is a price to pay for those sins. Because you've injured the justice of God. There is a price to pay. The priest gives you a penance. That's what you're paying. Sometimes you say, well, that's it? Well, be happy. That's the penance he gave you. Why? Because he knows. If it's not enough, you're going to make up for it. In purgatory. That's why you're going to be there. Or I'm going to be there. Or most of us are going to be there. Very few people make it straight into heaven. Okay? So, what is a good Catholic to do in a situation such as this one, given that you're confronted with temporal punishment? Is there something that you can do? Yes? What is it? Indulgences. Indulgences. Novenas count, but in general, indulgences. What are indulgences? Indulgences are means by which the church can take from her treasury of grace and pay for your temporal punishment. It's like a bank account. Exactly. And you draw on it because of the um, mission of mercy that God entrusted His church. Indulgences. So pay attention to those. And there are so many of them that when you read in the book of uh, the uh, Enchidrian or Enchidrian or however we say that word, all the indulgences available to you, you have no, I mean, we have no excuse. No excuse. There's so many of them. Yes. No, that was not it. No. What it, what was it is that there was a uh, the reason why there was a schism is because one of the I think uh, the 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 pope at the time. And I'm not completely on top of all the details, but be it as it may, that during this time it was possible for someone to give money to build a specific church, and as a result of that, receive an indulgence, yeah. and. Obviously, that's something that can be very easily abused because there is no indulgence unless you are repentant. So, therefore, there was effectively a, a, a problem, but that does not mean that the indulgence itself is wrong. It was abused, but it's absolutely a part of the ministry of mercy of the church. In fact, it's built into our families. How many times a kid does something wrong and goes to mom? And mom then talks to dad. What do you think she's doing? Right. It's an act of indulgence on her part towards the kid. Right? Well, that's, that's all that indulgences are. The church is the spouse of the Lord. He died for her. He listens to her voice. If she comes and intercedes for you, on your behalf, he listens. That's what indulgences are for. That's all. Yes. Yes. Uh, the way the fathers explain, in my father's house there are many dwellings. 
most of the fathers will tell you that these are the dwellings that were emptied by the fall of the angels. And therefore, since the angels are themselves structured in choirs, the seraphim being the highest and the angels being the lowest, and all, all of the angels fell from, fell from all choirs. Hence, there are different mansions, different homes in heaven reflecting different levels of glory. Yes, very good. Um, obviously, in, during our time, we do not have that restriction. Right? But with the intention, the spirit behind it should always be there, which is that you should never, ever, ever put your faith into your 401k, into your salary, into your income, into any of the immediate means by which you're making a living. All of these are good. All of these are God's way to provide for you. But you should never depend on them as if they are your salvation. And you should never, ever plan for your retirement apart from God. That's what the Spirit is all about. You understand? No? The whole idea of letting the land be fallow for one year, in which you plant nothing, is that obviously God is going to provide for the seventh year during the first six years. He will give you enough to cross over the seventh, even though you're not planting anything. And there'll be enough bounty in the next six years, to provide for the seventh. He structured it so you can have faith in Him. Likewise for Sunday. That's what we say. You know, Don't study on Sunday. Don't work on Sunday. God will give you what you need during the six days to make up for it, if you trust Him. So the same thing applies here. Yeah? Okay. Yes. No, no. Yeah, this is... No, it's in the book of Revelation. This is a very good question. Why is it that St. Michael, the archangel, is considered the prince of angels? the highest amongst them all, even though he's an archangel, which means he is from the second lowest choir. So, in the order of nature, Michael, as an archangel, is lower than seraphims. What do we mean by that? We mean that his understanding of God, his uh, grasp of who God is, his rational capacity, is much less than that of a seraphim. Or a cherubim, or a power, or a dominion. Okay? But in the order of grace, he's the highest. Because when Satan, when Satan, who is most likely a cherubim, rebelled, Michael replied and said, Who is like God? That's his name. Michael. Il is God. Micha, who is like God. He acted by faith because it would be like Poland taking on the United States in terms of power. He's much, much less than Satan and yet he defeated him through his faith. And he's made the prince of angels. Who calls him a saint? Yeah, I mean, even, um, yes, we call him saint. We, the church calls him the three archangels that we know of. Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael are the three archangels named in scriptures because they're obviously saints. They're in heaven. Who are sent by God and participate in His work of salvation. And because of that, they are intimately related to His work of salvation and hence can intercede for us because they did. All three of them actually intercede for us by their work. So therefore, they are called saints. Well, they are also saints. Your guardian angel is a saint. 
But these are the three that God wished to reveal for us for some reason. So he essentially canonized them. Right? Why, I would not be able to tell you, but that's what we know. Yeah. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.